edition of the dogger pass podcast presented by DraftKings sportsbook use promo code dop uh, for a bonus details for that a little bit later in the show ufc vegas 32 is on our hands paul shaughnessy here with cody saftik on the line breaking down another round of fights sounds like you've got some uh some greasers in the wheel uh based off of a submission underground card and, and you got a, a few little legs here to to really cash in big yeah well the main thing is this could turn out to be another greasy card but that's what we thought last week and it came together pretty nicely i mean two fights off from the prp and in those two fights yeah could have done a slight bit better but we're definitely getting back on track i really want to start this dk partnership with uh with a banger hence god damn it why does it always come back to stephen thompson versus gilbert burns that you know, maybe didn't get it off to the best footing that we wanted to, but certainly righted the ship last week. And this week, I think it's chock full of these nice little spots. Again, we don't have to overexert ourselves. We don't have to force anything, but I think we can put a, a couple nice parlay tickets together. So happy to be here, as always, Paul Shaughnessy. I've been on a pretty good run in the last, like, two months or so. I think the beginning of 2021 was a bit of a, a little bit of a dumpster fire, but that's the ebbs and flows of the game, man. You got to... Got to keep the chips in play and just keep grinding away. It's Nobody ever said it's going to be easy. Um, yeah, remember to smash the like button, do all that good stuff. Help spread the show so we can continue to bring you guys free content every single week. So main event here, we got Corey Sandhagen taking on TJ Dillashaw. Corey Sandhagen, minus 190 favorite. TJ Dillashaw can be half plus 160 former teammates in this matchup Dillashaw coming off of a two and a half year USADA ban take it away Cody Saftik yeah I think the name of the game is durability and then the potential long layoff of TJ Dillashaw I am not one to discredit TJ I mean I think his body work is tremendous his skill set is tremendous everything this guy does he does right I mean he's got very flashy explosive striking he moves well he almost moves like uh I don't want to compare him to dominant Cruz but the movement is just super unorthodox you know everything's pretty defensively sound but he comes from that Dwayne Ludwig system so offensively I mean he's a sniper as well I mean as far as his striking skill set goes he's amongst the division's elite oh wait he's got a collegiate wrestling background in his back pocket spent years at team alpha male grinding with some of the best guys in the sport cardio off the chain probably because of the epo but all the same the guy can fight (laughs) how could it not help (laughs) that's what it's there for (laughs) specifically very specifically Mm. you get a 10-year ban if you have a racehorse uh standard red racing and it gets caught with epo in system you get a 10-year ban that's how serious of an offense it is in his case he's coming off a two and a half year long layoff and uh, again, um, does it affect him? Maybe, but we talk about this week in and week out. There's almost always somebody on every card every week who's coming off some near three-year-long ban. Last week, it was Misha Tate with like a near five-year-long ban or whatever it was. And it just doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't skip a step. So I do expect him to come in excellent form. And for that reason, you know, a two-to-one price tag on Corey Sanhagen is a, is a little bit iffy. But again, if he's got the cardio, he's got the striking, he's got the wrestling, like what? What does this cat not do well? And that's why I mentioned it comes down to durability. I just don't think he's the most durable guy going. Back in the day, we would always point out to the example of him fighting John Dodson, you know, a natural flyweight who does have a big thumping right hand. And TJ Dillashaw had been knocked out in that fight. But when the first Cody Garbrandt fight came around, you know, the narrative that Garbrandt was, was trying to turn was, I've dropped this guy in the gym. 
I've knocked this guy in the gym. Watch, I'm going to do it. And he doesn't do it. He loses not only the first, but the first two TJ Dillashaw fights, all of them for that matter. Uh, but he does drop him pretty solid in that first fight. And so when you see Henry come out, again, a natural flyweight, walk right through him in 32 seconds. It's not that his durability is bad. It's that when you're fighting the best guys in the world, if there was one little knock on TJ Dillashaw, if there's one thing that we can discredit about him, because he's a pretty complete fighter. Yeah. If there's one thing that we can point out, it would be maybe the durability. When you look at Corey Sanhagen, he hasn't fought the same body of work. He hasn't fought the same level of talent. Uh, but shit, man, Frank Yeager, Marlon Marias, Aljamain Sterling, Rafael Sunshine, John Lineker, never been knocked down. He's never been knocked out in his career. The only time he's ever been finished was the submission for Aljamain. But I mean, he's a pretty cast iron guy. In fact, he got 106, he got hit 106 significant times against John Lineker and did not go down. And some of those shots are just bombs. And you, better than anybody, know why they call him hands of stone because John Lineker is an absolute monster in there. And I really think that Corey Sanhagen is one of these guys also training at elevation, has a great gas tank, has great cardio. He'll sh- he should be able to push the pace. Now, the other narrative out there is that these guys are actually former training partners. They were both under that Dwayne ben- Bang Ludwig system. And Bang had left Colorado briefly, taken TJ. They went to California. They did some, some spent some time in there. And Marlon Vera and Corey Sanhagen were pretty much the two guys specifically that were getting a lot of work in with him. When they went back to Colorado, they potentially worked a bit together. But then they went their separate ways. Now they're getting this fight book. I almost feel like if you're Corey Sanhagen, you saw TJ on EPO. You saw TJ at the best of his abilities. You saw him as a world champion firing off on cylinders. You were just the minion who's in getting work. And the guy that you're going to face on Saturday night, surely he's not better than that man. Whereas if you're TJ, you you were facing Corey Sanhagen. He was 26 years old. He was pretty green. He had a win over Mario Batista in pretty spectacular fashion, but he was still getting his feet wet in the organization. So who, who, who's going to come out here in better form? I would think Sanhagen. I would think this thing's scheduled for five. It's probably going to three, four, or five, if not the distance. But I would think at some point, the volume from Sanhagen starts to wear down TJ, whereas Sanhagen's able to take TJ's best shots and keep coming with it. So listen, this is probably a lot closer than the two-to-one price tag suggests. However, that is the guy I am picking would be Corey Sanhagen. Yeah, that sounds all pretty fair. Uh, Curtis Blades actually came out on social media, and maybe it's because maybe he just doesn't like TJ Dillashaw. Or maybe he's just, you know, <laughs> or he's just really good buddies with Sandhag. And, you know, fighters, like, they're obviously going to keep their allegiances. But he did say that when they were in the gym in Denver, that uh, Sandhagen would get the best of them on the feet quite a bit. I mean, this mm-hmm. is a kind of a fight where it's just like you really have to kind of see the weigh-ins. Like, TJ, this big layoff. I saw him in the octagon. He was doing a little bit of, like, preparation. He looks good. He doesn't look, like, dieseled up like he like he was during his title run. I don't, yeah, I feel like the price is close to close to correct here. My only concern with Sanhagen is it was only two fights ago where we saw Aljamain go out there, secure a takedown, and fish for a submission, find that submission super, super quick. Can TJ do the same thing? I don't think his grappling is on the same level as Aljamain Sterling. His wrestling may be just as good, though. So that is a bit of a concern uh, for laying, you know, laying a minus 200 price or minus 190 at DraftKings Sportsbook on Corey Sanhagen. And one, the last thing I want to really talk about is that you were talking about how you kind of thought the over, I mean, the over at plus 140, it seems over three and a half rounds plus 140 seems seems all right, but we've seen Sandhagen just, I mean, if he lands a flying knee square <laughs> yeah, on your yeah, chin, yeah, yeah. it's going to be tough for anybody to come back from. And Dillashaw, obviously he was knocked out by Dotson way back when, but... I mean, the Cejudo fight, I feel like that weight cut absolutely ruined him. 
Um, so I, I, I kind of give him a little bit of a, a little bit of a pass on you know the last time that we've actually seen him out there in terms of the durability because I think 125 was something he agreed to and then probably realized in the last week or so he's just like oh boy this was a bad idea well I'm with if you I I, could just yep yeah 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 little fish cup fish up. I was I was just gonna say I'm I'm picking Sandhagen here I don't have any cash on it though we'll we'll yeah we'll, we'll investigate further at the weigh-ins there's actually a few spots all over this car it seems like a very very important weigh-in week as far as I'm concerned, this one, we got Ladd and, and Chase on. We'll uh, talk about Williams versus Gall later on today. Um, Eubanks versus Elise Reed. Like, there's there's a yeah. lot of spots where the weigh-ins, weigh-ins are, ex- are always important, but they seem extra important for a bunch of fights this week. Yeah, that's fair. The only thing I was going to add on was just as you mentioned, that the fight with Henry Cejudo. A TJ was able to make 125 pounds. Did it take a lot out of him? I'm sure it did. But the dude made 125 pounds on the nose. There's no world that exists where Corey Sanhagen can make 125 pounds. Not, not going to happen. And furthermore, the guy that was able to take him down and now grapple him, Aljamain Sterling, there's no world exists that Aljamain Sterling's make 125 pounds. Like These guys are pretty big for the weight classes they're in. And uh, just for the record, TJ has not submitted an opponent since Vaughn Lee in 2012. So like nine years ago, again, there was a layoff due to suspension in the mix. So all, all the same, even if he does get those takedowns early, which he could, I'm hoping that Sanhagen's able to just work him over in those later rounds. But I, I think we're on the same page. We both got Sanhagen. We both agree that the price is a little disrespectful towards the former champ. All right. Next up, we got Cody's baby, Aspen Lad, coming back from, uh, from injury, taking on Macy Chason. Aspen Ladd, minus 195 favorite. Chase on could be had for plus 165. I mean, the reconstructive knee surgery tore her ACL. Um, I see her on the on the gram. You know, she's hiking. She's got uh, she's got dogs. Always. She always. seems to be, you know, she's putting in that cardio training. And that's cardio is always checked out for her completely. Um, but, you know, it's always a bit of an iffy spot coming back. I think Chason has a bit of an advantage on the feed here, but I, as long as Aspen Ladd looks pretty good on the scale, she doesn't show up like she did against Jermaine Durandamy, where, frankly, she probably shouldn't have fought the next day. Like, she looked next to death that day. Now I, I have a little bit of concerns that, you know, cutting down uh, a leg injury, so it's a little bit harder to get that cardio in and, and, and shave off those last few pounds. I kind of feel like that is a bit of a thing that's keeping me off of Aspen Ladd as a minus 195 favorite at this point, uh, obviously watching the weigh-ins. But uh, going back, watching Chase on versus Lena Landsberg, watching her versus Renault. Renault's able to secure some takedowns on her. Landsberg's able to push her up against the cage and secure takedowns. Like I feel like Aspen Ladd should be able to as long as she doesn't, you know, get completely flatlined in the first round, and I don't, I don't rate Macy Chase on striking on the same level as a world class athlete like, like uh, Jermaine Durandamy. As long as she can withstand maybe a little bit of an early flurry, like I think the takedowns are going to be there for her. And this girl has mean ground and pound when she gets it to the mat. She's uh, ferocious, and the noises that she make makes are kind of terrifying. So Aspen Lad's the pick. Just a little bit iffy, just based on the ACL tear. 
You know what? I couldn't agree more. Everybody knows that she's my baby. I always pick Aspen Line. That's my girl. But I, I will be the first one to admit she's a little bit of a letdown in spots. She's winning. Sure, the Jermaine Durandamy, not great. But there's always moments that you can point to that you're just like, oh, geez, you know, that's something she needs to work on. And she hasn't been super active. She's had a, a big knee injury. And the weight cuts, my God, these weight cuts, Paul. When I first started following Aspen Line way back in the day, she was fighting at like, I, I think it was 115 pounds. And she's just progressively moved up the ranking since, right? So she's fine, Victor. Sorry, she's 125. Struggles to make the weight. Amanda Cooper, 125.7. Katie Velasco, she's up at 135. She's moved up consistently her whole time. She misses weight against Jessica Hoy coming in at 138. She That fight with Eubank, she's dead on the scales. The fight with Landberg, she just barely makes weight. The fight with Evinger, like it, it's all just she always struggles to make weight. Now you can go back and you see her face drawn down teeth chattering and then she goes out there and fights Jermaine Durandamy and gets knocked out and you can associate it with just another bad weight cut she barely makes the weight she comes in and it's hard to push that type of pace she's a pace fighter her striking is not super clean right her wrestling's not super clean the ground and pound ferocious but all it is is just she just wears such a hell of a pace on these girls that she uh, eventually breaks you. You know, she broke Yannis Kunikea late. She was able to break Sinyar Eubanks late. She's able to break Tanya Evinger relatively early, but she just puts a pace on you that you can't match. But with a knee injury and a bag weight cut, if she's not able to push that pace, we've got a problem. Now, the other thing is that Jermaine Durandamy fight. It's over in 16 seconds. Mm-hmm. That's fair. But it showed a lot of bad ring IQ in those 16 seconds in that she ran headfirst straight into the pocket with Jermaine Durandamy and just got gunned. Like... Didn't really set up anything. Wasn't looking for the takedown immediately, which is what you think you'd have to do against Jermaine Durandamy. At least grind her into the cage for the first few minutes and try to tie her out. Uh, it's all a little bit worrisome. And now we have the knee injury. However, as far as that she matches up with Macy Chase on, it's just like you said. She's too big. She's too strong. She puts too much of a pace on. She'll be able to not outstrike Macy Chase on necessarily in terms of the flashier strikes or those big strikes, but it's going to be two, three to one. Macy Chase on probably is a slightly better striker, but Aspen Lan's going to pressure. She's just going to out-volume her. Again, you hear that noise. Sounds like a women's tennis match, but the judges are paying attention. And then once she's eventually get, able to get you to the ground, uh, like once she's able to get into the clinch, she presses you up against the cage, she muscles you to the ground, and then it's just in her domain. She's fought in similar opponents to Macy Chase on, namely probably Lena Landsberg, and it's the same thing. Do the same thing. The Yannis Kunikea fight, do the same thing. And so on one hand, we know what Aspen Lance's capabilities are, what she's what she can do on any given night. And we know with Macy Chase on, that's how she struggles. Even in the fights that Chase on's winning, right? Again, you've already brought this up, but uh, the fight with Marion Renault, she gave up two takedowns. You know, she gives up takedowns in these fights. I think if she gives up any takedowns against Aspen Ladd, it's going to it's going to secure the the round for Ladd, and Ladd should be able to just rinse and repeat, keep doing this. So I would lean towards Ladd Ladd by decision if I'm trying to improve the price. But just because she's not baby, I'm not going to force her up on the parlays this week. You know, she will be a little bit lower. I do recognize that because of the layoff, because of the bad weight cuts, there's a little bit of inverted risk there for sure. And I don't want to get you know goo goo gaga and cost myself a dollar. So uh, she'll she's the pick, but not as confident as I'd like to be. All right, we got uh, Kyler Phillips taking on Rowley and Pava. Mm-hmm. Kyler Phillips, a minus 260 favorite. Pava can be had four plus 210. Minus 260 is actually the best price on the market right now for Kyler Phillips. Went back and watched uh, Phillips versus Yadong, and I mean, they call this guy the Matrix for a reason, right? He's, this guy's he's... skilled. You know, Carl, Carlson Jiu Jitsu, uh, brown belt. Or Carlson Gracie, sorry, uh, brown yeah. belt. 
And, uh, I mean, his stand-up, maybe a little bit too much spinning shit. In round three against Yudong, he starts tiring out a little bit, gives up that round. But, like, he's clearly winning the first two rounds. He just lands some just beautiful strikes. The the rest, the rest The other thing that really impressed me about that fight is that he really seems to know where he is in the round. Like, Song Yudong fight was, it was a competitive fight. It was a, you know, Song Yudong's no slouch whatsoever. But, you know, in these exchanges, and he's still getting the better of the striking, but late in rounds one and round two, jumps in there, secures a takedown, kind of leaves no doubt. He's like, it's very, very high fight IQ that I see from him. On the other side, we got Pava, who... Coming up from 125, obviously missed, uh, came in at 129 when he was taking on Zalgus last time out. I think he's actually a pretty decent fighter. Good te technical kickboxer. Seems to have submission skills. Almost had uh, Kaikara France in a world of hurt at the end of round two. Um, saved by the bell. Uh, you know, he's got some slick submissions and all of that. But I think... I think Phillips is the real deal, like a legitimate top 10 guy in this division. I don't think, I think the move for Rowling Pavo is a pretty young guy up to this division. If 125 is a little bit too hard for him to make is going to be a good move, but not in this spot. You know, a lot of the advantages that he had at 125, he pretty much always had the reach advantage on people, which he doesn't have in this spot. Like I think Kyler Phillips is just on a, a totally different level. Uh, Kyler Phillips, Gets the W here. <laughs> Minus 260 at DraftKings seems to be the best price on the market. I think he's a pretty safe parlay piece. What about you? Yeah, again, I completely agree. I think Rolly and Pava's biggest advantage was his size at the weight class. And we see this all the time. They're like weight bullies. It's guys that can, they probably should be a weight class or even in some cases, two weight classes up, but they're somehow able to drain themselves out, show up to the fight, be much larger than their opponents and go out there and, and, and win the fight. And I think that's the exact same thing with Rolly and Pava. He's a monstrous 125 pound fighter. Now, when you look at his record, not even ultra impressive, just being so big in there, he's able to compete, keep competitive with all these guys. You look at the Kai Kara France fight, he actually he loses, right? To a to kind of a small flyweight in Kai Kara France, but everyone thought he win. He won the fight and his stock still went up and all good, right? Then the Bontrian fight, he suffers the cut, loses the fight. But you know what? He was coming on strong. His stock still goes up a little bit. He hasn't really shown you any greatness here. Just, you know, did better than probably some people assumed he would do. A win over Mark De La Rosa does really nothing for nobody. De La Rosa had no success in the UFC, you know, was not at that level. So a, a victory over there is almost assumed. And then that fight versus Zalgas Zumagulov. I thought he lost. I did not think he looked good. And for the record, Zalgas is about five foot five and a certainly a 125 pound fighter. So he fights flyways. And again, you know, if you, if you say, well, he should have won the Kai Kara France fight, but they screwed him. Well, he should have lost this fight and they screwed Zalgas. He hasn't looked ultra impressive. And then, yeah, sure enough, he misses two, three pounds by a, he, I think he came in at 128 versus Zalgas Zumagulov. So now the UFC forces him up to 135 pounds. You just took away his natural advantage. And it would be the same thing with Davidson Figueredo. I don't think Davidson Figueredo would be a top, 15 bantamweight. Bantamweight is the best division in the sport. Maybe he would be a top 15, but he wouldn't be a top 10 bantamweight because these guys are just too big. His natural advantage is that because he can somehow make 25, he can come in as just the largest guy in the division. So Pava is going to be up Shit's Creek against a lot of these guys moving forward. And then they didn't just give him any old 35er to get his feet wet in the division. They gave him a surgeon, Kyler Phillips, who's coming a long way. I mean, we saw Kyler Phillips back on the Ultimate Fighter. That would have been 2018. And he looked like he was the tournament favorite then. 
They liked him then. He was undefeated. He was the man. And he loses to Brad Katona, kind of an upset. Fight, first fight after the ultimate fight, he lost to Victor Henry by split decision. If you know Victor Henry, though, absolute gangster. Since then, it's like now you're seeing him realize his potential. Now you're seeing him coming into his own. And the Song Yudong fight's great for a couple reasons. One, he gets to go three hard rounds, test himself. Cameron Else, again, it's another expected win. It's presumed that you're going to beat this guy. So to go hard, three hard rounds, show us that grit, show us that cardio. Even though he's fatigued a little bit, this is good. This is getting that in, getting that experience. The wrestling looked on point. The striking was flashy. He is very athletic, very good footwork, very fast fighter. And let's be real. Song Yudong had been fighting Cody Stamen and Marlon Vera and Eric Perez. Uh but my God, it's like or Alejandro Perez. Sorry, Eric Perez, not the much less talented one in Bellator. But he, he, Song Yudong is a legitimate prospect. In fact, Song Yudong lost that fight, and he's now fighting Casey Kinney coming up, an even bigger fight. Kyler Phillips is the victor in that fight, and he's taking a step backwards, taking on a flyweight in Roli and Pava, who arguably ro- robbed Zalgas his last time. But this is a step backwards for him for all intents and purposes. So. Uh, I definitely think Kyler Phillips wins this fight, whether it's stand-up or on the ground. The the one thing, because you can never just completely discredit a guy, is that Pava is a good pressure fighter. You know, he keeps coming at you. The guy is pretty durable, unless you got a cut stoppage on him. And if he keeps coming forward, it did not have a bad weight cut, is feeling himself, and is able to keep that kind of grinding frontward pressure for two of the three rounds, then he could make it a lot dicier than a three-to-one favorite would suggest. Um, but all the same, I'm going to go with Kyler Phillips as the pick. And I'm hoping he comes through. Derek Minner takes on Darren, the damage. Elkins, Minner, minus 150. Elkins, plus 125. Who you got? I'm going to go with Darren Elkins. Take a dog pick here. Uh, Elkins has kind of had the unfortunate run of just fighting like a who's who of the sport. I mean, he shows losses to Nate Landwehr, my boy. But Ryan Hall, you know, a specialist. Ricardo Lamas, a former title challenger. Alexander Volkanovsky, the current champion. Even the losses back in the day. Hakran Diaz, the shooto champion, who is... Back before Usada came around, a legitimate threat. Jeremy Stevens, Chad Mendez. So we know that he's a gatekeeper, and that if you're legit, then you're going to get through Darren Elkins and you're going to cross the gate. If you're a prospect, you know, you're, you're not the real deal. You're a little bit overhyped. If you're over the hill, you're an age journeyman. He's going to capitalize on those guys. It's the guys that are that are looking to beat that gatekeeper and get through. Those are the guys that Darren Elkins loses to. Derek Minner is also a gatekeeper, only he's a regional scene gatekeeper. Now, we can talk day and night about the improvements. or the He definitely made improvements. Since he's left and gone over to James Krause's glory, MMA and fitness in Kansas, he does look like a different guy. This dude never settles for decision victories. This guy never settles for position on the ground. He just tries to go out there and blow you out of the water as quick as humanly possible. So we have seen a different version of him. That's all well and good. But that different version of himself came over Charles Rosa, a a man notoriously with no takedown defense in which that game plan could work. And let's be honest here. Minner was completely cooked, gassed out, tired after the first round. But the takedowns kept coming. He had top position. He kept working. I'll give him that. But his style would work against a Charles Rosa. He caught TJ Laramie because, again, that's what happens when you guard the gate. This is a young kid. He hasn't really fought and faced any adversity. I'll snag up his neck before the gets but before the fight gets going. See what I can do. Submits him with that. You can look at an entire career of men are showing up and lasting about a round and falling apart. Mm-hmm. He's not known for great cardio. He's known for as a guy that goes out there and blows you out as quick as possible. The one win over Charles Rosa, the only time he's ever not done that, is not enough for me to now believe that he's a complete changed man. He's also not super young, so I just don't know that he's going to completely change his game, and his game's very erratic. 
I, I just honestly feel like Darren Elkins is going to be able to stay out of the submissions. His wrestling game is actually better than Minner's. He should be able to wrestle him. He's got three round cardio. He's a bigger body. He's going to be able to grind on him. He is in fact a larger man and you will see that at weigh-ins. And if he can keep this fight standing in spots, Minner will outstrike him. Mm-hmm. But over the course of two or three rounds, Elkins should be able to start grinding in on him. If this is Elkins' slight favorite, I probably hit it as a pass. But this is Elkins' dog money, and that's the best time to get some Darren Elkins. So he's coming off a win, which would indicate he's not completely shot. That win, even though not pretty, was another blue-collar workman-type performance. That's what he does best, and Minner, to a degree, is very similar. So if that first round submission doesn't happen, it should be Elkins' wheelhouse, and that's what I'm going to be banking on here. Yeah, seven takedowns against Eduardo Garagori. I basically agree with you, like, top to bottom on that one. Minner's last fight was definitely the best performance of his career from a, you know, maintaining his energy. But even on the ground, you know, Charles Rosa was kind of complacent to hang out there, and, like, he was fishing for, like, an ankle lock. Like, he was kind of complacent to stay on the mat there. Darren is going to try to get back up. Um, and I'm not sure Minner's going to be able to, like, secure takedowns. The only person to submit Darren Elkins is Charles Dobronx Oliveira, like, years ago. I mean, that guy's pretty good. I'm not sure Minner's going to be able to to put him away like he did against, uh, against uh, TJ Laramie or a bunch of other guys that he's done all along the way. Uh, that was my first bet of the card. I found a, uh, a plus 152, but... I see plus 125. It may have even moved to plus 130 on DraftKings Sportsbook right now. It's uh, it's a clear dogger pass for me, so I'm with you. Give me some Derek, Derek, uh, Darren the uh, Damage Elkins. All right, we got Miranda Maverick taking on Macy Barber. Miranda Maverick is a minus 135 favorite. Barber can be had for plus 115. Interesting fight between two, you know, up-and-coming fighters in the division. Uh, All right, so Barber's been... She. I think this is a really, really important key factor of this fight is that, you know, there was always questions about, you know, Barber training in, like, Fort Collins with, like, her her family around there and is she getting the, the proper training, all of that. I saw that she's moved to Team Alpha Male. She's training with Corey McKenna, uh, your baby, uh, your other baby. You have lots of babies. Yeah. Um, getting they ready. Have, for they their... all have five high foreheads, just like me, like five head. You'll notice all the girls that I always claim are like my baby, always like uh, JJ, JJ, JJ Aldrich, Macy Barber, my God, uh, Aspen Lad. I know, I know. I'm a four, high forehead guy myself. Maybe that's I... why we can relate. Wow, interesting. I, I didn't, know. I didn't actually that? know that, but now it's it's all coming together now. The queen, the queen of the high forehead women's MMA is Karina Dan Rodrigo's sister. Check her out. Um, I think this fight is another dogger pass type of situation. I Barber's had an up and down career, obviously. Obviously, the Roxanne Modafferi fight. She gets taken down in round one, and she's controlled, and it's not exactly a great look. But we have to remember, this is a 22-year-old fighter at that point in time. Um, comes back against Grasso. Not the greatest spot either, but there's a the grappling isn't horrible. Her escapes aren't bad she just kind of looks inexperienced when she's down there what this fight really comes down to for me is i think we just with macy you got like a much more ferocious striker the damaging shots and the pace 
that she throws at is uh, just a tear up from what I see from Miranda, uh, Miranda Maverick. I mean, it's really, really obvious in the, you know, Barber versus Robertson versus um, Robertson versus Maverick. Barber absolutely just gives her the business, like goes after her, mauls Jillian Robertson, gets her out of there. Probably her best performance in the octagon. Whereas Maverick, you know, she's winning the striking exchanges on the feet. She does all right. But like a lot of that round two, Jillian just basically controls her, is able to hold her and, and you know, win the fight or win that round pretty convincing, convincingly that way. I think that kind of cooks Jillian Robertson and then Maverick's able to, uh, to really put on a clinic in round three. So the cardio really checks out for her. But Barber's cardio has always been good. She even won round three against uh against Alexa Grasso last time out despite looking really tentative on the feet like she was fighting from such a long distance and anytime she would enter the pocket Grasso who's an excellent uh, boxer and coming into her own right like into the prime of her career was just picking her off uh but she made some nice adjustments in round three and I kind of take that as you know coming off of a serious leg injury uh, first time back I, I thought I I, I see some some reasons for promise and at the, you know, the plus 115, I think it's a dogger pass situation. So I, I got a little bit in on uh, Macy Barber here. What about you? Yeah, I definitely see the logic hundred percent. You know, she's young, she's making improvements. She's still got a high ceiling. She's training over a team alpha male. Now that's all well and good. But to me, this is a, this is a legitimate, I don't know. They're both legitimate. Don't get me wrong. They're both exceeding, but they're both young prospects, right? Mm-hmm. This is a, the narrative on Barber is always, she's so young. She's improving. She's her potential youngest champion. Oh my God. Look at her. Whereas Miranda Maverick just doesn't quite get the same amount of attention, but Macy Barber's 23 and Miranda Maverick's 24. And if you look at body of work, even though Macy Barber came out to a hot start to her run, I almost favored what Maverick's doing. First of all, Maverick is, huge for 125 pounds i mean this girl is ripped up muscular i looks good as far as i'm concerned but she like is a very very strong physical girl at the weight class so uh macy barber comes in usually with that advantage of she's fairly big as well i just think it's off the table maverick's starting to put it all together the footwork's getting better the striking's getting better she leaves her chin a tad bit high up in the air but you can see fight to fight she's making these improvements and again she's super young Whereas Barber had everything kind of not given to her, but she had success was given to her really early. And so when you get early success, you get overly confident in yourself. You get uh, inflated, you know, belief in your skill set. She's training at Rufus Sport in Milwaukee, which you know it's not going to go good if you're training out of there. And uh, sure enough, it doesn't go good. She actually left Ryan Lyon Schultz out of Fort Collins, went over, loses to Roxanne Monteferi, and that's where it's like bang. Bucky Barber. Who the fuck is Bucky Barber? Her father, overprotective father, with a huge stake in her and her career. And then you start to see the parallels between her and Sage Northcutt. Northcutt was also heavily influenced by his father, Mark Northcutt. Mark was, they, they, they get you training from a young age. They have this, they've put a lot of money and resources into you and your career that they believe that certain things should be handled certain ways. And what happens is that these people are ultra talented. Sage Northcutt, I'll stand by this claim is ultra talented he was a freak of nature young explosive had everything the problem was is that he wasn't at american top team for six years fighting three times a year it's like they would give him these winnable fights he'd win them in a minute 
maybe maybe two rounds at the most, get in, get out, look pretty doing it. He pulled him out of TriStar because the sparring was too tough. They pulled him out of Alpha Male because his the the, the sparring was too tough. And ultimately, he would do his, his camps at Gracie Baja in, in uh, Kathy, Texas, isn't it? Chatty or Caddy? Katie. Chatty Kathy? Katie, Texas? Katie, Texas. He would do it at Gracie Baja, Katie, right? So wh- wh- why was he being pulled from these rooms? Well, then it goes back to just they want it. It's always the coach's fault. It's always the trainer's fault. And as a result, you don't have one coach that's been with you for your entire career. No, you have your father who's been with you your entire career. So she's like that, right? She starts at one gym. Then her dad takes her to Ryan the Lion Schultz. And Schultz is the man, former IFL champ, fought Sengoku in Japan, hard-nosed grinder. She does well there, but then she leaves there and she goes to Duke Rufus's. And now she's left Duke Rufus's and she's gone to Team Alpha Male. Like, what do you want? Maverick is central centered, right? She's been at the same camp. She's the one that's making the improvements. And honestly, the way I see this one going is even if Barber is able to take her down, not going to matter. What you saw from Barber versus Alexa Grosso, that even against a Mexican boxer, she was unable to hold her down with those takedowns. In the later in the third round, she has better success, no doubt about it. But the first two rounds, she fights awful. What, what I like about Maverick is Maverick does get taken down twice by Jillian Robertson. And both times, it's like no panic out of her. She just like looks at her corner, acknowledges it. And at one point looks at her corner to be like, she's just holding on for dear life, makes the adjustment, stands back up. And when she stands back up, she's the one coming aggressor, landing the combinations. If you want to look at it by the numbers, Macy Barber on a good output night, she lands 40 against Grosso. She only landed 16 against Modafferi, but understandable. She blew her knee out. She was on her back the whole time. She lands 32 against Jillian Robinson. Again, it's a first round finish. 55 against J.J. Aldrich. By the way, she loses the first round against J.J. Aldrich. She got hurt in the first round against J.J. Aldrich. Mm-hmm. Not the greatest of performances. Yeah, but these numbers that you're talking about, you're talking about they're like fini- finishes. finishes. Yeah, yeah so like 32 and strikes she... in one round. like that. Yeah, I know. Okay, so you're going... Okay, I thought you were being like, oh, she doesn't have outputs. It's like when she... When she put bites on her mouthpiece and, I, and goes I, after I it, that, the volume is there. I think what it really I, comes down to, from what I've seen between the two of them, I feel like the grappling is a wash between the two of them, and I'm just taking the person with a little bit more pop, and uh, you know, I, I like the striking, the stand-up game from Barber a little bit more, and I think that she just hits a little bit harder and yeah. use, uh, throws a little bit more strikes. I could see it being very close, but obviously the line dictates it it's close i just don't see too many big advantages for maverick to uh to pay the price of uh minus yeah, 150 that's, favorite that's fair that's fair fair enough i we're on the opposite page here but yeah we can't agree on all of them and we this can. is a close fight we can't do a all shooey. right do a shooey, shooey. A shooey uh, on this one? i've already got money know. on it we'll uh i got money on it too but Cowards. but all right well Wow, the peer I don't pressure. Get, not, yeah, I don't want to get peer pressure into a shoot, but I'm trying to think of another bet that we could do. But I don't I know. It's honestly a fight. Because I was actually, yeah. I was actually. Are you considered... confident? Are you confident in Barber? If you're telling me you're fucking sure Barber's gonna win, I'll take your bet. You were wrong, Paul. But if All you're right, like Peter Patter and like, eh. All right. Now we're in. Shoot okay. Bet. All right. Hand high All five. Right. DraftKings Sportsbook is not only our favorite sportsbook, but also America's top-rated sportsbook. Speaking of America, America's top athletes are all over Tokyo competing for the Golden DraftKings has a medal-worthy offer just for listeners of the Dogger Pass podcast. Listen to this great offer. Place any pre-event wager of $1 to be eligible to cash $100 in free credits if... 
America wins any medal this year. That's 100 to 1 odds on an American athlete to stand on the podium and receive gold, silver, or bronze this week. 100 to 1 odds on an offer like this doesn't come around very often, so sign up for DraftKings Sportsbook now and get in on all of the action. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code DOP when you sign up to turn $1 into $100 in free credits if America wins a medal. That's code DOP to turn $1 into $100 in free credits for a limited time only, only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or over, New Jersey, Indiana, and Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in Indiana, 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Uh, all right, we got Jordan Williams taking on Mickey Gall. Jordan Williams minus 170 favorite. Mickey Gall can be half plus 150. This fight is at welterweight, which is interesting and of note because Jordan Williams is a type 1 diabetic um, we've seen him come into his Dana White Contender Series fight at 181 pounds, then 182 pounds uh, against Imovov, who we'll talk about later um, in his fight, and it's because he hasn't been able to cut weight. Uh, a little birdie reached out to me in my DMs, who uh, has somewhat close contact to him, and says that they've been working on this weight cut for quite a long time, so everything should be under control. But I think this is a fight that you definitely have to look at the weigh-ins uh, before anything uh, comes in. I mean, the guy wasn't able to cut down. He was very, very undersized at a, at 185 pounds. I think 170 pounds could be a great weight class for him. He seems to have some serious power in his hands. Um, and yeah, it was, it was basically like a physicality thing that really, really bothered him. And his chin seems to check out from what I've seen. The gas tank hasn't been exactly perfect, but uh, I mean, going back and watching Gull... Uh, last time out against Mike Perry. And Mike Perry, I mean, that's like his only win in quite some time. It was a pretty it was a pretty dismal performance. I know that was a year ago. I imagine Gall's made some improvements. I see that he's working with Matt Brown uh, somewhere in New Jersey, getting ready for this. Matt Brown came out, looked great in his fight. I'm sh- There's a few spots where, like, you know, Gall's stand-up looks like he's making progressions. He's making improvements. But then the later that fight goes, Gall's kind of getting dropped. He's flopping around. He's trying to lure Perry into the submission game. There's a lot of red flags there. So I feel like this is kind of like a favorite or pass type of situation. You know, even at 185 pounds, uh, Williams is able to is able to hurt Amovov on the feet. There's a head, clash of heads in the first round, but then the one minute and 30 seconds left in the first round, he clips him real good, and he's got uh, Amovov, you know, on stanky legs a little bit. Amovov's able to take him down and, uh, you know, clear the cobwebs that way. But there's definitely a power and a uh, stand-up game advantage for, uh, for Williams in this spot, but... The guy hasn't been down to 170 because of a, you know, a condition that he has. I think you got to be safe and, and make sure everything shakes out on the scales before you do anything about it. But uh, Williams is the pick. What about you? I feel lied to, man. We would tune in to Daniel White's te- contender series, and they would tell you the reason he's not fighting at 170 is because he can't cut the weight, man. The diabetic, he's not can't cut the weight, has to fight at middleweight. And in fact, his last performance there, Gregory Rodriguez, he came in at 181 pounds for middleweight fight. 
The next fight against Imunvov, he weighed in at 182 pounds. So he was definitely putting himself at a disadvantage fighting these larger guys, but what could he do? There was nothing he could do about it. So yeah, it was actually nice to see that his team figured out a way to get him to 170 pounds because you would just think with his body frame, he'd be much more suited to that. But I don't know how that's going to affect it. First time cutting down, 15 pounds is a lot of weight to cut. Uh, I just don't know that it's going to be an easy cut for him and that he's going to be good to go. And because you can't confidently get behind it, I wouldn't want a, a ton of exposure to this fight. But yeah, I, I think he would go with Williams. And that's just an assumption. We're assuming that the weight cut's going to go good. We're going to assume that he's better at this weight class. But I don't mind what I see from him. That loss against Ramazan uh, Kermagomedov on Contender Series, uh, split decision. Arguably, he you could argue that he won. But beyond that, he was a 3-1 to one underdog, plus 300 underdog. He was unexpected to do much. And yet, he still ended up losing a split. Gave a good account of himself. He just keeps coming at you. He's got some durability. He's got some heart. Is his cardio great? No. But his durability and his heart seem to carry him through. The Gregory Rodriguez fight, they both land well, but you see that he's got some striking to throw in with that. And then his debut against Nasrin um, Imovov, again, you mentioned it. He kind of did hurt Imovov in the first. He showed like that striking is there. Do you end up getting the victory? No, but all good learning type experiences from him. With Mickey Gall, it's been like a sideshow attraction from day one. He should have never been in the UFC, but... They had this, uh, we signed CM Punk, and it's a CM Punk sweepstakes. We need a no-name guy that's going to come in and fight him. Uh, Mickey Gall, he was at that Dana White uh, looking for a fight. Remember, Dana would go, and he would travel to these different places. And Mickey Gall, young kid, just coming off an amateur career, basically, just won his pro debut. I want to fight CM Punk. And they say, you know what, kid? You got it. Because if some washed-up professional wrestler could beat anybody, potentially it's this guy. And he made a career out of it, but it was fighting just those guys. He beat uh, Mike Jackson. And then he beats CM Punk. Then he beats Sage Northcutt. When they finally were like, you know what? Fight a good guy, a legitimate guy. Randy Brown wasn't even established at the time, but Randy Brown was far too much for him. He looked awful in the Brown fight. You could make an argument that maybe he won the second round because he ended up on top, but he looked awful the entire way through. So they rebound him one with George Sullivan. Well, George Sullivan was three and four in the octagon since been released. You know, he was 37 years old. Best days were certainly behind him. So can he beat that level of guy? Yes. Then his next fight, Diego Sanchez. You and I cash plus money tickets on Diego Sanchez under this the sure pretense of Diego's still durable, right? I mean, dude, dude doesn't get submitted by nobody. Mickey Gall seems like a one-dimensional grappler at this point. Um, if he, you can't submit Diego Sanchez and Diego Sanchez has got good cardio, then Mickey Gall at some point will get tired, will get taken down, will fold over. Boom, wouldn't you know it? Diego Sanchez, of all people, beats him. But I will admit, his striking looked a lot better in the Diego Sanchez fight for like the first three or four minutes. Then he beats Salum Tuari, terrible fight. Then that last one against Mike Perry, the striking actually did look good again for about five minutes. So I can't discredit him. He's definitely working on his striking to be something that goes along with his grappling. The problem is, is that his striking is still not very good and his grappling is just all not all that good. His wrestling is not all that good. His cardio is just not all that good. He's been thrown in the lines and that all of his fights are in the UFC and it, it's tough to you know, win three, four fights in a row and get your confidence going because what he'll do is he'll win one fight over guys that get cut shortly after. Salim Tuari, by the way, is 0-3 in the UFC, no longer employed with the company. He beats those guys, but then they don't let him beat two or three of those guys in a row. He just gets another 
fringe top 20 guy and he can't beat those fringe top 20 guys. So coming into this spot against Jordan Williams, it's like, even though it should be a winnable fight for him and I expect his striking to look good in the first round, I expect Mickey Galt to maybe even win the first round. I, if, if I'm just going based on what I've seen historically from both guys is that Mickey Galt come out, look good for the first three to five minutes, win that first round in the second and the third round, he should start to tire. Williams has got forward pressure. Williams keeps coming at you. And if it becomes a dog fight, both guys are tired. Williams has come through on the other side. He seems to have the heart. He seems to have the desire. Whereas when Mickey gets tired, it, the game, his game falls off very rapidly. So he's been off for a full year. He's only 28, 29 years old. He's still young enough that another year off is going to be good for him. But Mickey Gall's another one of these gym jumping sons of bitches. I mean, he starts off his career with Miller Brothers in New Jersey, right? And then as soon as he signs with the UFC, bails for Miller Brothers. He spent time at TriStar. He spent time at American Top Team. He spent time in California. He spent time. And now, what'd you mention? He's back in. He's back in I didn't New even York. really he's know back what Back in Jim, New Jersey. Yeah, I saw him and Matt Brown in Jersey. I for, it was like I want to say like a Gracie gym of some sort. And I believe I can't, it. I, I believe can't it, dude. He's, right now. he's bounced from a bunch of gyms, and I just feel like he's another similar to Sage Northcutt. He's another one of these guys that had a bigger reputation than a skill set, and as a result, they didn't develop properly. As a result, they had an inflated ego. And that's that when reality hit, it's like they just couldn't catch up quick enough. This is by no means an easy fight against Williams, who's a fucking middleweight, right? A middleweight coming down. He's not a middleweight, but he's been fighting middleweights. I've been fighting them tooth and nail. Did I mention he's got a win over a guy whose last name's Kermagamadoff? And it was a split. Sorry, he lost, but it was a split. It was a close fight. Like, dude's in with it. I can't say the same thing for Mickey Gall. So even though this is closer to a dogger pass, I just, I don't want Gall. I'm going to end up going Williams, and we're just assuming the weight cut's going to go good. So tune into Friday, watch the weigh-ins, give it your best assessment. But if his, if his, him and his team put in the work, I think that Williams comes in and gets the victory. Yeah, it says Gracie New Jersey Academy. It's him and Matt Brown. There's a big Gracie yeah. Jiu-Jitsu sign behind them, and there's like an old guy to the right. I mean... And I'm not too familiar. The only thing I know about him is that he was working with Matt, uh, with Matt Brown in the lead up to this fight. All yeah. right, we got Punas. Wrestling, wrestling and jiu-jitsu could be his key here, right? Maybe he's been working on strike. I mean, like, take Williams down. My thing is that Williams has been fighting bigger guys, so he should be better, you know, acclimatized to that. But, yeah, let's move on to the next one. Good we, one. Yeah, really good one. We got Puna Soriano taking on Brendan Allen. Minus 115 Soriano. Minus 105 Allen. Who he got? I find it very difficult to get a beat on Soriano. Clearly, he's extremely talented, and I don't know why I keep having this reason, this this belief that maybe he's going to falter at some point because he's just he's not doing it. That fight with on Contender Series, we fought Jamie Pickett. I thought he looked gassed out by the end of the fight. His cardio right, wasn't yeah. great. He's a guy that had previously knocked out everybody in the first round. We know he's got massive power, and not only does he have massive power, but He's got big power in both hands, so he's a very dangerous opponent. But Pickett had never been previously knocked out. He's a very durable guy. And as soon as he was forced to go a few rounds, there, there was a lot to be desired. Now, mind you, he's only 6-0 at the time, right? He's new. He's basically only started pro- fighting professionally a few years prior. He's full-time out of Extreme Couture, and he's managed by, he's managed by Ali Abdelaziz. So I didn't think it was a contract-worthy performance, but sure enough, He's going to get a contract out of it, and he does. And then in the two fights since, I passed on him versus Pachota, just didn't really – again, I didn't have a great read on him, but 
especially in hindsight, you know, he's got way too much power for Pachota, so he touches him and he melts him, right? Fair enough. Now you move him on to the next fight, and the problem with Dusko is he fights with his hands down and his chin up in the air, and so he drops Dusko twice, scores two knockdowns, and eventually does knock him out in that first round. It's another nice performance, but what we didn't learn anything more from him. We know he's got crippling power, and apparently he can wrestle. Apparently he's a decent wrestler yeah, as well, D, but we don't D, see enough. D3 yep. All-American. And he was D3 a judoka before he was a judoka before he got into MMA as well. Yeah, and so like, now it it's like to have all of the all recipe the- to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Dude, you're 100% right. And that's why I'm like, why, why do I keep doubting this guy in his b- abilities? He's got massive power. He's undefeated, young, good-looking kid, can wrestle. Because people say, oh, wrestle D3. D3's high level, man. And wrestling's one of the few collegiate sports where the D3 champion could go and start on a D1 program the next year, no problem, right? It happens all of the time. Guys will win junior college national titles and then will go to start on a, a legitimate D1 squad. So, yeah, I mean, the guy can wrestle he's got the he's got the judo he's at extreme couture which is a very hot gym in the hotbed for mixed martial arts with the best manager in the game uh sky is the limit for him and sure enough it it appears like he's got a very high trajectory in that sense but i keep going back to the what if somebody was to extend him two and three rounds what if somebody was to get him deeper Mm -hmm. and with brandon allen brandon allen would be a threat if he could get him deeper but he's got durability issues of himself when he engages in these wildfire fights he leaves himself way too open and he's kind of got a suspect gas tank himself like he just pushes such a tremendous pace in there that he eventually wears himself out you see him he takes a lot of risks a lot of risky fights and his wins are generally very quick finishes not quick finishes, but he looks really good for the first round, takes you out. And his losses are when guys are able to extend him. Again, this goes back to the Eric Anders fight and the Anthony Hernandez fight. They're both LFA five-round title fights. He loses those fights because the longer they go, you know, he kind of falls apart. The, the Kyle Doukas fight looks great for the first two rounds. Gasses out hard and loses to a debuting Doukas in the third. Still gets the decision, but didn't look good in the third. Mm-hmm. The Sean Strickland fight, gassed out after the first round, or after the first, takes too much damage in the second, gets knocked out. Uh, again, even the Kevin Holland fight, he does win by rear naked choke, but if you go back to right before the finish, he's huffing, huffing and puffing, but they're hectic pace fights. So whereas my only knock on Soriano, maybe he's got a suspect gas tank, Brandon Allen could very well have the same, if not worse, gas tank. So I think that more often than not, uh, Allen comes in, his takedowns get stuffed, Soriano's jiu-jitsu, in, or sorry, his uh, wrestling and his judo background is good enough to keep the fight standing, and then at some point, he's going to land one of those nuclear bombs. I just don't think Brandon Allen's going to be able to take it. Last but not least, um, Allen's been at Sanford MMA his last two fights. And yeah, he's looked a lot better. But the first fight, his first camp at Sanford is the fight with Sean Strickland. And instead of going out there and trying to wrestle Sean Strickland, which is what everyone believed if he was going to win, that would be his path. He decided to just use this newfound striking, stand in front of him, and it did not work out for him. He took a lot of damage. That last fight with Carl Robertson, he gets a heel hook in the first round, but one's got to wonder, does he still believe he can go, does he believe he can go out there and strike with Soriano? Because if he does, even for two or three minutes, it'll be two or three minutes too long. Soriano probably clips him with something. So I'm going to take Soriano, but again, as much as it does sound like we're hyping him up pretty big and we're finally on the bandwagon, I'm not jumping on the bandwagon fully quite yet because like I, I think in my mind, there's still, there's still a small possibility it just goes right off the tracks. But he's probably going to go out there, handle Allen in the first round. That's a credible victory. It'll be in spectacular fashion. And people will say, I told you so. You missed out on the, on, on the boat again. So, so maybe this is the first time I'm going to give him his, uh, his credit. But 
it just it's not a top ticket play it's not a second ticket play but he will be on the pier he will be on the ticket at some point is what i'm getting at right at the end of the day my only question with soriano is how much should i bet on him yeah well, because again, that picket fight picket fight there's a possibility that that was a bit of an adrenaline dump at the end of round yeah. two he definitely seems cooked i mean he's trying to knock this guy out and pick it obviously up until that point never been knocked out as you were saying earlier um, it all kind of just, you know, but in round three, he's able to kind of get back on track. He's able to find takedowns. He's able to secure top position. He's able to, to cruise it out. It was not nearly as electric, as impressive as the other two fights that he's had in the UFC, which are both first round finishes. And he is throwing laser guided heat sick seeking missiles at these guys' oh, yeah. heads. And I, I I thought it was kind of interesting. He's like a little bit smarter when he has like Pachota hurt. Um, he knows like, okay, he, he'll, he'll go in there. He's swinging, 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 trying to knock you out. But when that doesn't work, he, he knows to like back up a little bit. It seems like he's developing. He's, he's maturing in that respect. And Pachota, who's got a pretty decent sub game, um, has him in a couple positions, but you can see that grappling kind of pop or uh, show its head in those spots it's like he was able to like escape pretty quickly and then and then get back to the feet and get back at her again um strickland versus strickland i mean was kind of there was a couple spots at least early in the fight where like strickland actually had like top control against brendan allen he was having the wrestling advantage against him and and as the fight wore on strickland i mean landed like 94 significant strikes yeah obviously gets the second him. round finish and then the other thing, the little interesting tidbit I saw here uh, in the Allen. Now, that maybe this is nothing, but Allen versus Roberson. Roberson is fighting like switch stance in that fight. Now, I kind of thought that Roberson was having his greatest successes fighting Southpaw in that position. Because any single time he switched to Orthodox, um, uh, Brennan Allen was just chewing up his, his lead leg in that spot. But Brennan Allen was seemingly a lot less, like he wasn't willing to throw like the inside... Or like when he would go to Southpaw, he wasn't willing to throw the leg kicks as well. Um, you know, because obviously you're crossing the body. Uh, it's a little bit easier to get knocked down and, and out of position. But it seemed like Roberson, you know, he's switching back and forth, at least early on in the fight. Obviously, it was a first round finish by sub. But at least early on, the best work was happening from the Southpaw stance. And obviously, Puna is a Southpaw. I mean... I'm I'm drinking I'm drinking the Kool-Aid now. Uh, I I haven't been all in on this guy up until this fight, but I think it's time to to start taking some notice. Uh, the durability yeah. when he has been hit by Pickett seems to check out. The only question, as you were saying, it's the it's the cardio. So yeah, the question is how much. I mean, the, the, this line opened at like minus two ten, and then it shot up to like minus one forty immediately. That's kind of how these things go. But I feel like the minus 150 to minus 180 is where I would probably line this fight. I don't think this is a pick I think Puna's got some significant advantages here. As long as, you know, the state wrestling, as long as that wrestling holds up and they're able to stay on the feet, I think it's going to be a bad night for Brennan Allen. Yeah, so that's one thing you just mentioned that's real interesting. See, I'm looking at best fight odds right now, and it's an even money fight. In fact, it's a slight underdog for Puna Sariano, right? And you're, you're actually right about that. Puna opened up as a minus 220 favorite, and now he's on some books a slight underdog. You just mentioned that you, had, you see it as minus 150? 
I I would if I was lining it, it would be like at least oh, minus yeah. one fifty. I think he wins at least sixty yeah, yeah, percent yeah. of the time. Probably I agree. I'm probably upwards of like sixty six. Like I, I'm saying, like I I don't understand why why it's turned into a pick'em. To be perfectly honest, now yeah, the interesting that's, thing that's about this is maybe I, I hadn't made a bet on it yet because I wanted to talk to you, but. The interesting thing is, you know, Brendan Allen is like three inches taller. Puna's kind of like a Kelvin Gastelum with more power and definitely more ferocity um, from what I see on tape. Um, he's a little bit small for the weight class. Like, are we going to get to weigh-ins and I'm going to get an even better price? Like, the line's been moving in that direction. And then how many people are really watching the weigh-ins? Like, I don't know. There's a lot of questions about that. But, like, when yeah, people, when I'll, people I'll see you. Brendan Allen towering over this guy, uh, you know, is that line going to, am I going to be able to get a plus money play on Puna here? I'll tell you what, my boy, Chris Curtis is in the room at Extreme Couture in Las Vegas, Sean Sor- uh, with uh, uh, Soriano. Mm-hmm. And the the room consists of on the daily, Alexander Gustafson's there, uh, Hazmat Chimaev's there, Jake Shields is now full-time as a coach, and drum roll please, Sean Strickland, right? Sean Strickland's full-time at Extreme Couture, gets rounds with him on the daily, the man who actually beat the shit out of Brendan Allen to a pulp just two fights back. So those guys are all actually taller than him as well. And I would, I would, I would reckon that it's probably not going to bother him as much. And then last but not least, there is a height and reach advantage for Allen, but Allen doesn't fight like a long fighter, dude. No. He comes straight forward. Like he he gives you his advantage right off the hop. Like he just closes the distance on his own accord. So no doubt Henry Hoof is probably teaching him these things, but it's hard to learn on the fly when it's like, Oh yeah. What was that thing we learned on Wednesday night? Sam, sorry. I just cracked you. Like, you know, bad time to figure out new shit. The best way is don't deal with this guy. Take him down. But yeah, Soriano had five first round finishes all in the first round, fought picket, looked suspect. And the only time he went after one round and then the two subsequent fights are in the first round. So I think that's the only one thing we got as a question mark, but, we also agree that this guy looks like he could be the real deal. This could be a coming out party, and we will both be betting them. All right. We got uh, Ian Heinish taking on Nasruddin Amovov or Imovov. Heinish, minus 145. Imovov is a plus 125. We got. I'm going to go with Ian Heinish. Uh, I think well, this is some tragic shit if you're Ian, Ian Heinish, right? This is his career, dude, as far as like, you know, with the UFC and Contender Series. He fought Justin Sumter on the Contender Series, and Justin Sumter is a wrestler, right? And he did give up a takedown there. Then he makes his UFC debut against Cesar Ferreira, who by that stage was no longer willing to strike with people. So he's looking to take you down and, and, and grapple with you. You know how Cesar switched up his game plan. And he gives up five takedowns. His next fight, he takes Antonio Carlos Jr., who's a grappler. He's going to try to get a hold of you, and he's going to try to peel you to the ground. Sure enough, he gives up four takedowns. He won all three of those fights, by the way. Then he gets Derek Brunson, who is a legitimate wrestler, stout guy, goes out there, will take you down, will hold you down. And sure enough, he gets taken down twice. Then they give him Amari Akhmedov, who is, you know, Dagestan power wrestler, Sambo guy, going to try to get a hold of you and wrangle you to the ground. And sure enough, Amari does two times. Gerald Mearshart, uh, Jared Mearshart could do it all. And, you know, he stood a little bit too long. Heinish flatlines him in a minute 14. Great performance from him. The guy didn't wrestle great. And then they, they give him Kelvin Gaslam his next time out. Whereas Gal, Gal, Kelvin can be a striker. He chose to be a wrestler on that night, scoring six takedowns over Ian Heinish. So on one hand, Ian Heinish does not look particularly good at, in a lot of these spots in the UFC, but he's been fighting almost the exact same style. Guys that are not looking to engage him, they're looking to get a hold of him, peel him to the ground, and then grapple him. And yes, are they able to do it? Sure. But Antonio Carlos Jr., he fights at 205 now. 
You know, you have, you have Derek Brunson. He's in the top 10. You have Kelvin Gaslam. He's a former world title challenger. Those guys are extremely legitimate. What he gets in Imovov here is a guy that really doesn't figure to take him down. And even if Imovov did shoot a takedown, he's not those guys. He's not a Mariak Madov. He's not Derek Brunson. He's not going to go out there and get those takedowns over Heiner. So we should be able to see Heiner for the first time be able to go out there and just not have to worry about being taken down. That should open up his own striking. And he's going to mix in his offensive takedowns as well. Listen, he's not just a guy that goes out there and gets out grappled. He's actually a fine wrestler, comes from a wrestling background. Take into consideration, he's been taken down 20 times, 19 times in the UFC, one time on the Contender Series. He's been taken down 19 times in the UFC and still shows a 60% takedown defense. Why? Because he stuffs a lot of these takedowns too. It's just he fights elite-level guys. But on top of that, he did take down Kelvin Gaslam. That's impressive. He took down Amari Akhmedov three times. That's very impressive. He took down Antonio Carlos Jr. He took down Cesar Ferreira. He can wrestle. It's that, again, it goes back to the level of competition that you're fighting. Imovov has been my boy. Imovov's a guy that I have a lot of respect for. He beat Jonathan Menier in his last fight, Aries FC, before he came over to the UFC. I hyped him up. He got a win over Jordan Williams. I hyped him up. He didn't look great against Williams, but he did land a ton of shots that put down the average human being, and so I gave him a pass. Williams is just really tough. No problem. Williams did st- stun him in the first round, hurt him in the first round, but I give him a pass. And then I backed him as an underdog, which I didn't don't regret doing because Phil Haas did almost blow that fight. But fuck, he looked awful against Haas, man. Like, he literally, when Haas wanted to control him against the cage, it was just, like, nothing. He would just press him up against the cage. There was nothing there. Imovov gassed out. Imovov had very poor ring IQ. He just just fought an absolutely abysmal game plan. Cardio looked bad. Everything looked bad, really. And sure enough, still almost wins the fight with Phil Haas. But gasses out, does too little too late, and uh, loses the decision. Rightfully so. Fair enough. Since then, he's not like these other, when you look at these Russian guys from Dagestan, it's like you stay in Dagestan, you stay, stay in Russia, you are going to be an absolute threat. But if you leave Russia and you go to one of these mega gyms, like an American kickboxing academy, like an American top team up, you might even be able to hit other levels. You know, Chimaya, if he went to Sweden initially, all-star, great gym, best gym in Europe. And, you know, even he realized, actually, I got to go to Extreme Couture and just get the, the better bodies. Imovov's problem is that he's in France mm-hmm. working with, Alan Bodeau and not taking himself out of his confine of his comfort zone and not he's not making the same improvements and so whereas he could have been something special because he's a he's a guy that knows how to wrestle a little bit and has good striking they call him the sniper he's a long rangey guy he's kind of big for the weight class whereas he does some of those x-factor variables I don't can't trust that he's made any improvements and what we saw against Phil Hawes was abysmal so Heinrich has been fighting ranked guys on the routine. And even though it's been bad style clashes that lead to him looking pedestrian. In this fight, the style clash actually favors him. He can strike with Imovov in spots. He can have a lot of success striking with Imovov in spots. But him mixing in his own wrestling, due, due to that guy, what everybody else has been doing to you, that's the key. And at 155, it's not really that bad of a price tag. I got a strong feeling this thing's going the over and going the distance. And I would go Heinrich, Heinrich by decision. I actually kind of, I, I think that, I think the overs in this are a little bit juiced and here's why a little bit over juiced and here's why. And I actually have a small little, a small little 20 to one feeler on this one, which probably won't win, but I feel like it's a better than 5% chance that yeah. it happens. I, I mean, a Movov maybe against, against Williams. Obviously, there's the clash of heads early in the, in the round and that stumbles them a little bit, but at one thirty. Williams is able to land, and that gets him on stanky legs again. Now, maybe that they're they're both related. He still hadn't completely recovered from that clash of heads. 
But that's like a little bit of a of a red flag for me that I think that that over or like by decision props aren't necessarily safe here. Obviously, we're in a small cage again between these two. Heinish training at Sanford MMA for this fight. Um, I see him out there with uh, Rafael Fazayev and uh, Gilbert Burns putting in some time with Greg Jones on his wrestling. Heinish versus Gastelum. Not a very good performance whatsoever. A lot of low IQ plays. Tries to throw this like flying knee a couple times. Ends up on his back. Kelvin's able to control a bunch of situations that way. Um, he initiates grappling. Ends up getting caught in body locks. Taken down again. Um, he, but he has good grappling. He's able to get back up. He has like some nice reversals to, to get back up to his feet. I took a little shot on Ian Heinish. I, I went back and kind of watched the Mearshart fight. And I know Mearshart gets finished. You know, if you grapple with him, you can you can give him his day or you can have his day on you. But, uh, you know, he's been knocked out a bunch of times. But, yeah, just the ferocity, the power that he has with, with his hands in that spot, I feel like 20 to 1 um, that I saw out there. Is just a little bit too wide uh, for a guy who just got wobbled a little bit against Jordan Williams early in the fight and was definitely eating shots from Jordan Williams. I think the move of camps is huge for Ian Heinish here. His grappling, I mean, you know, he took on Antonio Carlos Jr. and uh, Cesar Mutanche Ferreira, and those guys weren't able to to get in on him and find any subs on him. So I don't think that that's much of a concern here. Movov may have the better jujitsu slightly but the wrestling advantage is on Heinish's side if if, if a Movov is able to take him down I really doubt that he's able to take him down for long um my question is whether I take Ian Heinish by knockout I see it at plus 700 on DraftKings Sportsbook and I already have the little just a little just a little sprinkle on the uh Ian Heinish round one knockout just uh watching the Mearshire fight I'm like if he lands that it may be lights out for Imovov. I don't think Imovov, or Imovov, I keep saying Imov, I don't know why. Uh, Imovov is a, uh, I don't really, yeah, I don't see much potential for him moving forward. I, I think it's a great move for Heinish because that fight against Gastelum, there were a lot of bad decisions being made. So hopefully at Sanford and MMA, probably with, uh, yeah, with, you know, better corner people, better strategy, better game planning. I'm expecting him to uh, to show his the best version of himself that we've seen to date. Uh, so I'm with you. I like Heinish, but I'm not so sure about the the overs there. I'm I'm more intrigued by what I think is an overinflated amount of value on the uh, on the finish props in this fight. All right, moving on, we've got Adrian Yanez taking on Randy Costa minus two ten Yanez. Plus 175 Costa. I mean, this is actually even moved more on DraftKings Sportsbook. It's minus 225 plus 185 now. People like themselves some Yanez. And I mean, what's not to like? The guy kind of looks like a, a young Jorge Masvidal. Like, the hands are tight and crisp. His boxing is just, you know, clinical when he's in there. And on the other hand, you got Randy Costa, who's a bit of a finisher. Very, very explosive uh, very, very damaging and uh, uh, scary guy, at least in round one. That's 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 for sure. Um, I, I agree with the line movement. I just kind of feel like we've missed we've missed the boat here. You know, earlier in the week, Adrian Yanez was like minus 165. This pr price just keeps inflating, inflating, inflating. Obviously, Yanez has never been uh, 
finish due to strikes. The chin seems to hold up when he does get hit. It's kind of like a knockout or bust for for Costa here, but the pick is Jan, as I just think he's just on a whole different level from a striking department. What about you? Yeah, I talked to you before the show about how like Yanez was the guy when they opened up the lines last week. It was just like that looks pretty good, minus one seventy. I like this, and then to see it balloon up to minus two thirty, it's like everyone's believing they're on the same page. Everyone's kind of seeing the same thing. But this is punchy kicky, and that's that is that's how Randy would win. You know, he's a guy that has a lot of power for this weight class. If he was to clip you, if he was to land something on you, he he seems to be able to get that quick knockout. But beyond that, if you want to go with skill set, it's like Adrian Yanez can do it all. And Randy Costa has shown us that he's extremely explosive and dangerous for one round. And explosive and dangerous, not like, oh my God, this guy is one of the most elite level strikers in the division. No, he just he's bum-rushing these guys. Like He bum-rushes them and lands something. He too has now made the move to Sanford MMA from Lozon MMA in Massachusetts, where he had been previously. And no doubt he's going to be making improvements. But there's just not enough that you can go off. He made his, when he came to the UFC, he was 4-0, first four round, first finishes, all four in the first round. Those fights, Stacey Anderson, 0-4. Kenny Lewis, 0-1. Chris Thorne, 5-9. And, and Rob Fuller, 0-1. How that got into the UFC with a 4-0 record, couldn't tell you, but they needed somebody short notice. And he came out and he bombed on Brandon Davis for two minutes, three minutes. And then when he gets tired, eventually he gets put away himself fair. The Boston Salmon fight. Boston Salmon went winless in the UFC, fought twice, knocked out very early both times, released from the UFC, fights on the regional scene now. He just bombs on him. The fight with Journey Newsom. Journey Newsom is one and two in the UFC. His one wins actually had no contest because it got overturned due to a, a marijuana suspension. So it's not the end of the world, but but he was but not not a whole lot of success. He can bomb on those guys. Yanez is not that guy, man. I mean, he looks slick. I mean, I didn't even think about the Masvidal comparison, but uh, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. He's a green version of him, but he's so slick on the counter punch. Keeps a nice high guard, slips out of the way, and he's just got a nice counter attack. That he causes, he baits you in, stays in that range, stays in that range, causes you to throw, and then capitalizes on it immediately. When you look at his two pro losses, they're both by split decision, meaning he's never really been beat sound. But a lot of the time, it revolves around the wrestling. Domingo Pilarte is able to wrestle him to the ground a little bit. Miles John's able to wrestle him down a little bit. He's making strides in his overall game, and he's doing very well. But this is the key with this kid's success, man. Like, oh, shit, he beat Kyle Estrada just by split. Eh. Oh, Brady Huang on Contender Series, who's that? Oh, Victor Rodriguez in the UFC, oh, who's that? Right, right. But this is the key. This kid's super young. He's fighting for LFA titles. He's fighting good guys. Then when he beats Victor Rodriguez in his UFC debut, motherfucker get a $50,000 bonus for it. And so by his own accord, he's like, as soon as I got that $50,000, I quit my job and was just like, oh, sweet. I can train full-time now. I can devote myself to the sport full-time now. And so the first fight as with him as a full-time fighter is Gustavo Lopez. And dude, he's the one in the matrix in that fight. He just sees everything so clear. Gustavo does land a nice clean shot around minute and a half, two minutes into the first round. And it, he takes it very well. He shows you that he can take a punch. But beyond the first two minutes, Gustavo is done. I mean, he is surgical with his approach. He picks him off. And that knockout of the third round, I mean, he just walks in. Gustavo throws, bang, counter. Gustavo hits the ground. Now, Lopez was a guy known for his durability, was also training at Extreme Couture with a lot of good training partners. And, you know, was somebody at the very least went three rounds with Rob Devashvili. And Yanez absolutely sniped him out of there. But it was the method in, of which he did it, third round. After controlling everything, after seeing everything he had, after getting that experience, after feeling comfortable, and then sniping him off. Whereas Randy Costa just bum rushes you and tries to put you away within the first two minutes, 
or he falls off. So mm-hmm. the marketing to this fight has been awful. It's uh, Dr. You don't Pepper like it? versus Reese's. No, I don't know. I mean, you know what? Okay, I'll give this. I don't give think this. it's for us. It's probably for a younger generation. <laughs> okay, that that's fair. That I was gonna say. It's, it, it, I should. I shouldn't say it's awful because I do see people comment and people are like, "I'm on this side or I'm on that side." But like yeah. to to me, that's like. Yeah, that that's some I don't know. That's some hokey shit as yeah, far as they're I'm garnering concerned. some interest, which is hard when you're this deep down a card. I mean, this it's a great fight. It's a great to fight between two young and upcomer uh, upcoming fighters in this division for sure. Yeah, yeah. If somebody wants to take a you know what, hit me up on Twitter. If you've got Randy Costa, you feel I'm a little bit harsh to him, I will take you this bet on Twitter. If Randy Costa loses Cause he's 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 a uh, he's the peanut butter cup guy, and I'm and 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 Yanez is the Dr Pepper guy, right? Mm-hmm. So if your boy wins, I will eat a warm Reese's peanut butter cup. But if my boy wins, you got to drink a warm Dr Pepper. <laughs> Good luck. Wait with a that second, one, that man. doesn't sound fair at all. The dirtiest a warm no, peanut butter cup sounds delicious. Paul, obviously it's not a good, that's what I'm saying. Who doesn't, who's not team peanut butter cup? I think that, I think that the Zohan's getting it fucked up here and gets thrashed, I but like Dr. Pepper I'm, still on, I'm still on, I'm still on team Reese's Dr. Pepper also delicious, but you can't drink it all the time. And again, if you drink a warm one, it doesn't go good. So I, I think cost is largely outgunned. I think the line movement is spot on. The, the only thing is they call Randy Costa the Zohan and everybody knows that you don't mess with the Zohan. So could he land some barbaric head kick in the first two minutes? Like, suppose it's true. And Henry Hoof working with him now, you know, even even more so. But I like what I see out of Giannis. If Giannis gets knocked out, little Cody's taking a bath in some of these bets I've already got pre-made because when I got him at 170, I loaded up. Now, right now, I feel good about it. But if he gets flatlined by the Zohan, I'm going to feel real bad about it. Anyways, Giannis is one of our guys. I, I imagine, to me, he feels like a top-ticket player. I think you put him on the top-ticket. But if I can get some of these less-risk-type fights, because this is a banger, let's be honest, mm. then then great. But actually, Greasy Theory, Greasy Theory, um, Randy Costa's only path to victory is bum-rushing him now, right? But if you go on Randy Costa's Instagram, it's all – it literally the entire thing, his Twitter, the entire thing – is this peanut butter and and Dr Pepper thing? And they they go the Step Brothers, and it's like they'll put Yanez's face, and it, they just take scenes from Step Brothers and just put Yanez's face and his face and Costa's face. Look at it, dude. It's honestly borderline creepy. I would say this guy actually might be a stalker. I don't know. I don't know for sure. I don't know Cody, for sure. No, it's just, I don't know for sure. But it's fucking weird. And what? No, this is the greasy theory. This is the greasy theory. Is that his path to victory is bum rush this guy and just knock him out. But it seems like he likes him. It seems like they're friendly. It seems like they're very cordial. And he might actually come into this fight and pitter-patter a little more than he normally does. And that ain't his path to victory. So even more of the reason why I think Yanez is going to take the victory here. My, the- my, my greasy theory here is that you're just getting to an age <laughs> now. You're Like, I remember, you know, you're, you're, you're what, five years younger, six years younger than me? No, I'm, so- I'm turning 30 in, like, fucking two weeks. And how old are you? You're 34? Uh, I'm 36. Oh, really? So, yeah. See, yeah. I didn't I didn't realize you were that much older than J-Rock, my older brother. Paul and J-Rock. Old man. Um, I didn't realize that. Why, so, did you get a lot more cynical as you got closer yeah, to 30? Yeah, Maybe 100%. that's my problem, dude. You're I'm ter- almost 30. I'm you get into your cynical. 30s, and then you start looking at, like, the 19-year-olds, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the, the younger generation, and you're just like, I, yeah. how do I reach these kids? It's, it's just a part you know of what? life. But, I, that, but then eventually, you know, you get up true. to like 34, 35, 36. It's just like, ah, just let them have their fun. 
I'm a little bit <laughs> yeah, less yeah. disgruntled about it than I would have been. You're, you're just coming into the I don't understand. <laughs> I'm, I'm just you'll, about you'll get, 30, so just trying to get it. Yeah, you'll you'll run out of steam and run out of energy to uh, to really backlash or feel too passionate about what they're up to. No, right, fair enough. It's all it's all part of the game. All right, we got uh, Julio Arce taking on. Andre, you will Julio Arce minus one ninety five favorite. You will can be had for plus one sixty five. Arce coming down. He's been off for quite a long time here. He hasn't fought since twenty nineteen. Um, coming down from one hundred forty five pounds, and I think as long as it works out on the scales, I think that's a pretty good move for him because you know going back watching the Hakeem Dawadu fight, he's definitely. Struggling with the size there. He loses a split decision against Hakeem, who is, who is no slouch by any stretch of the imagination. But there's a de- you can definitely, they look a weight class apart. Like, Arce just, his boxing's great. His hands are, are slick. He's got a nice one-two. Um, grappling looks pretty, pretty decent all the way around. I like what I see, and I think this is a good move for him. Obviously, like any uh, Andre Ewell fight, Ewell's got like a 75-inch reach. He's going to have a four-and-a-half-inch reach advantage in this fight. Um, he's a really, really big guy for 135 pounds. But uh, on the feet, in terms of the more impactful strikes, as long as the weight cut's able to to play out well for Julio Arce here, I like his chances. I think he's should be landing the much more... He may eat some jabs to deliver some one-twos kind of thing. Um, but give me the guy landing the more impactful strikes. What's your take here? Yeah, I got to agree. I got Julio Arce. I think the move down to 135 pounds, assuming that he's going to be able to make it comfortably, is definitely better for him. He did previously fight at 135, but hasn't fought at 135 since 2016. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's been five years since he's done it. He's been off for a little over two years now. Uh, and and he had both of his bicep or he had both of his elbows repaired, surgically repaired. So he has been off. Yeah. Yeah. So he has been off for like a legitimate reason. I mean, he's had some major surgeries. He's back down to 135. That all gives you a little bit of cause for concern. But as far as the skill set goes, he's got a much more far advanced version of uh, Andre Uhl basically everywhere. I mean, he's got way crisper technique with the boxing. He's a guy that boxed golden gloves back in the day. Uh, he's a southpaw, nice, clean, sharp uh, punching. The kicking game, I'm definitely going to give it to Julio Arce. The wrestling, the jiu-jitsu, it all goes to a Julio Arce. Durability, probably Arce. Uh, cardio, Arce. Arce's got it all, right? It's that Ewell's got that goddamn reach, and that's something that gives everybody problems. Mm-hmm. And I could actually see it giving Julio problems. The reason I say that is... You will, the reason why he's a bit of a freak in nature is that he's only five foot eight, but he has a 75 inch reach, right? And when you see him stand, it's like his hands are by his knees. He's just got these super long limbs. So if you want to look at an example of Julio Arce fighting a tall opponent, then you go two fights back to Julian Arosa, in which Julian Arosa is six foot one, but only has a 74 inch reach. He's actually got one inch less than Andre Ull, despite being four, three, four inches taller than him. You know, he's six foot one. So he's a much bigger guy. Um, when you see that fight, it's like when the few times that Arosa stands back and allows you know, Arche to come forward, he is able to touch him with the jab. He actually does bust his eye up a little bit with the jab early in the first round as well. But unfortunately, Arosa does not ever use his reach, never uses his length, and doesn't throw straight punches. He throws hooks. 
So he starts getting too aggressive. He starts marching forward. And he starts trying to pressure him and throw hooks. It's a bad game plan. But when you do see glimpses of him using that jab from the outside, it does appear to be money. And Andre Ewell is a guy that does that in all of his fights. Mm-hmm. So here's the only here's the only concern here is that Ewell tends to be in these really close fights where you've got to base it on damage versus output. He always has the output, but he very rarely has the damage. And judges have a very tough time getting it right. When you look at his, his his last few fights, right, the Chris Gutierrez fight, um, you know, the leg kick's fine, and he did get dropped with the head kick at the end of the first. The Irwin Rivera fight, he outlanded him 123 to 81, and yet it's a split decision. Now, why is that? Because Rivera lands the harder shots. It's just that you will land much more of them. But the Jonathan Martinez fight, again, he outstrikes Martinez 80 to 66, yet all 14 media members on MMA decision gave the fight for Jonathan Martinez. Yet the vast majority of fight fans scored rounds two and three and gave the fight for Jonathan Martinez. And yet the judges side with Andre Uhl. Well, why would they go with Uhl? Again, it's the output. By the numbers, he did actually outstrike him. So why, why would you not go by that? But again, Macy Barber, by the numbers, she outstruck Alexa Grosso 40 to 38 and scored the fight's only takedown. How does the person outstrike them and get the takedown lose? Because it's a three it's a three-round system. You got to win these individual rounds. And when Ool, it's like the rounds are always close. He stays to the outside. He jabs. Arche comes forward. Arche tries to kick. Arce tries to get going. But it just might be a little bit dicier than we need it to be. And then the other thing with Arce is that, yes, he's coming off the double you know, elbow surgery, which in and itself is a bit of a problem. But that fight with Hakeem Duwad, you obviously watched it because you referenced pretty much all the key moments. But Hakeem kicks him in the knee like, 30 seconds into the round and it visibly does something to Arche's knee in which he shakes it out. He moves very gingerly on it. And then even though he does appear to recover later on in the fight, it's like, it could have been a potential knee injury that on top of the, the elbows on top of a long layoff. If we don't get the best version of him, then you going to keep this close and then a bad judge could screw you. And that's like literally my, my only worry because it's apples and oranges. Otherwise, I mean, RCA's fighting guys like Hakeem Duwadu, Shaman Rice, Dan Ige, you know, those are tough guys. Ool has fought in tough guys, but he's scraping a lower version, you know, Erwin Rivera, a split decision win in a relatively close fight in a fight where he landed 81 significant strikes on Erwin Rivera, a man now in jail for murder, no longer with the UFC. Like he, he kind of operates at a fairly low level and he kind of fights to his opponent's level. So, Arche should be able to go there and expose it. And then what brings it home to me, you know, I don't want to think about it anymore. I'm just going to go with Julio Arche is we're, we're kind of basing that strictly just on the striking game. Arche's got some solid BJJ and some mm-hmm. okay wrestling as well. Yep. He mixes in a takedown or two. This fight's his all day long. I'm minus 190, the layoff and the surgery. Okay, okay. But it seems like a generous price. And for that reason, I'm going to hit this one. Minus 190, Julio Arche, and hope he brings it on home for me. Yeah, probably a fight you should uh, check out the weigh-ins before you get too aggressive of on course. it. Because yeah. There's a lot of weigh-in fights Yeah, on this card. Yeah, he hasn't been down here in quite a long time. All right, we've got Sarge uh, Sajara Eubanks taking on Elise Reed. Eubanks minus 380, Reed plus 290. This fight's at 125, and Sajara Eubanks doesn't have the greatest history coming down to 125. Obviously, Elise Reed coming in on short notice, and she's a natural uh, straw weight, so weigh-in shouldn't be an issue for her, but probably giving up quite a bit of size. What can you tell me about this fight? 
Yeah, this should be a walk in the park, no problem for Sinjara Eubanks. The problem is Sinjara Eubanks has actually got a completely different fight the night before, and that's mm -hmm. the scale, man. I mean, her making weight is going to be a tremendous issue in and itself. First of all, she's not getting any younger, and we've known that she's had these weight-cutting issues for a long time. When she was on the Ultimate Fighter, she made it all the way to the finals. You're going to get a title fight. You're going to fight for the first ever 125-pound title. And she's not able to do it. Roxanne Modafferi ends up getting the title fight instead. Then she fights Roxanne Modafferi and blows weight, 127. Then, then you would see, you know, she shaves, she shaves her head to make weight in one of these fights. She, her body shuts down and she's forced to take, be taken to the hospital to make weight in one of these fights. And just, it's not going good for her. So she moves up to 135. And she's just not a 35er. We talked about Roly and Pava earlier in the show. His advantage is his size at the weight class. And she's the same way. She's two and four at 135 pounds in the UFC. Fought in good fighters, don't get me wrong, but two and four is not exactly a great record. At 25, she's so big, she just needs one takedown. You're not getting up. Her jiu-jitsu is top level, BJJ black belt, Lloyd Irvin student, you know, very credited on the ground, very strong, very physical. Striking work in motion, work in progress, you know, a little bit herky, a little bit flat-footed. Uh, doesn't keep her hands particularly high, but, you know, is going to get outstruck by the top level fighters. But against somebody lesser, you know, she can make it work for her. But it's you got to use that wrestling and use that jiu-jitsu. And against 135 pounds, she just can't get it going. So she's able to make 125, right? She gets on the scale. She feels good. She's made the weight. That in itself is a huge win because it's like, okay, she's going to be a factor against a lot of 25ers with that sheer size. Where you mix that in with the fact that uh, Elise Reed is a natural 15er, and it's like, okay, you got a, you got a problem right there. You got a, a big Sajar Eubanks against a small Elise Reed. But then... Let's talk about Elise Reed. She's not a grappler at all, at all. She can strike. She can strike. She's, she doesn't have much power. She's more like a Caitlin Chukagian. She's more like, a, you know, Holly Holm actually has power. So I won't use her as an example, but she's somebody that can just land, you know, volume from the outside, you know, ha, ha, ha. But that's about it, you know? I mean, just chip away at you. Yeah. Bench and then just chip away at you, chip away at you, chip away at you. But as far as the grappling goes, it ain't there. So, I mean, I wasn't overly familiar. I, I know her because she fought... Uh, Jasmine Jasudavisius, who's uh, just from Niagara Falls, just down the road, and a le pretty legit prospect, actually, pretty pretty girl as well. But I'm familiar with it, but I wasn't like overly like I gotta I gotta go back and check out the whole body work, and it's exactly what I thought. The ninth time when she fought Jasmine, Tapology's got it listed as a four round fight, it's not the three round fight, but she loses all three rounds. It's a 327 for Jasmine. She got taken down six times. Not only did she get taken down six times, she got outstruck and taken down six times. I don't know what world exists in which this girl wins a split decision, but they gave her the split decision. Now she gets a title fight versus Jillian DeCourcy. G Jillian DeCourcy is like 36 years old at the time. And Jillian DeCourcy takes her down like fucking four times. In fact, that is a legitimate five rounder. And at the end of the five round, the commentating team, everyone's agreeing. They're like, well, the damage was certainly on the, on the side of Reed, but she got taken down and controlled for three of these five rounds. So, she might actually lose this fight, and she ends up getting the decision. I think it's Hillary Rose. She doesn't start off particularly good, but eventually she's able to, you know, outwork her and get that stoppage victory. The takedown defense is not there. The grappling off her back is pretty much not there. She's going to be a much smaller fighter. She's coming in on short notice. None of this seems like it's going to go good. The, but, but how could she win? 
theoretically, let's theorize how she could win. Eubanks has a bad weight cut, and this girl is a better striker. Better striker on the basis of she's going to have the volume and the speed advantage. Mm-hmm. And all she has to do is just circle, just circle Eubanks and pot shot at her. When she gets Walt desperate, Page, she tries to move. a little bit more difficult, too. Would, would be, would be, but it's really going to come down to the weight cut. So yeah. I want to watch come Friday, but yeah, this is what, like minus 385 Eubanks, and I completely agree. Like, styles do make fights, and this is a 100% stylistical matchup that goes in her favor and if she just does even half of what she's capable of doing she wins this fight not pretty but she still wins this fight if she does what she is capable of doing this is a walk in the park for her but with Sanjara Eubanks uh, she never makes anything easy on herself like it's generally ugly but again just do what you did against Avila the Julia Avila fight if you just replicate that and that was a big 35 or you did that too Mm -hmm. you can replicate that here and I know you can it would be a walk in the park, and I hope she does it easier on herself. I didn't include her. Remember I told you before the show, I was like, I got three big plays that were parlayed with some shit from last week, and I'm still rolling on it. Ubanks wasn't one of them, just because as much as she's the biggest favorite on the card, and even though I completely agree with that, she's an apple pie shipper. You know, she's someone that, you know, we don't know how the weight cut's going to affect her. And going back down to 125, we can only assume that even if she does make it, it is still going to affect her, right? So she is the yeah. pick, but just a little bit of buyer beware. That's fair. I'm, lo- I'm still I'm still in search of a parlay piece for Kyler Phillips here. In well, my opinion, yeah, in my opinion, I'd go Kyler Phillips, uh, Adrian Yanez. I mean, that's what I'm all about. And um, and then I put on Julio Arce, right? And then as far as designing, you know me, as far as designing PRPs and the plays go, I think I would be inclined to put a Corey Sanhagen on the top ticket. Just saying, if we can get to that main event, it'd be an easy hedge out on TJ. He's the plus money guy. He's actually got some decent plus money against him. So yeah, I'm not. A, I think I'm I would a, go. I'm not yeah, a hedger. You're not a hedger, much. eh? No. It depends how much you got. I mean, if I'm, I'm got a, if I'm holding a ten to one ticket, I'm hedging out. If I'm holding a six to one ticket, a five to one ticket, even multiple ones, then you know what? I'm just gonna let it ride. But you got to be smart enough where it's like, let's say you can guarantee. Last weekend was a great weekend, right? It's like okay, everything's gone really good. I can make $10,000. Now, if you put $1,000 against Islam Makachev, right? It's an easy it's an easy fade. You put it on Tiago Moises. Then if Islam wins, you still make a $9,000, man. But if for whatever reason, Tiago Moises happened to win, he would still collect like 7500 bucks by yeah. the time that the line went off. I mean, it was my, terrible. My, my big so stuff play. like that, you should, even though I didn't, you sh- you know, it, it'd be yeah. smart. I mean, this I, one's not quite as good, but it's still an easy hedge spot. I'm not playing that game myself. It's just like last week I had, you know, big parlay with uh, Makachev and, uh, and D-Rod. D-Rod. Yeah, and, you crushed it on I that, mean, man. They both made it easy. Yeah, I mean, and that's what I'm generally looking for when I make like yeah. a, a decent sized parlay. It's like two, maybe three legs if I have to, and I want it to be pretty sweat free. I think Kyler Phillips is just on a different level. Eubanks, I mean, the problem is I feel like the longer I wait, if I wait for weigh-ins to happen, it's like this line's gonna get away from me. I mean, these are it's all part of the game. But uh, I'm, I'm gonna have an end. Up, I'll end up having. Phillips parlayed with something. I just got to think. Yeah, I would. For me, for me personally, if you put Yanez and Phillips together, you're you're getting even money right off the hop. And then if you added in the third pick, would you be? Yeah, the third pick would be Julio Arce. You're getting two to one, and then you add a Sanhagen because you can hedge out at the end of the night, and you're getting a minus. You're getting a plus three forty. Right from from there, we're gonna sprinkle in our Aspen lads. We're gonna we're gonna sprinkle in our oh definitely yeah. Sinjaro Eubanks on that one. Well, we still have a fight left and here. We don't have to go through the PRP. 
No, yeah, we're not joking, PRP. I'm just saying you don't have to put all 12 of these fights, 11 of these fights on the same ticket. You know, you could definitely just go with what you're saying. Have a, have a two-fight ticket, a three-fight ticket, and a four-fight ticket. Cap it off with that. Like, you don't have to overpressure. But last week, I thought this is a freaking landmine card. and Things just fall into place. You, you never really know what you're going to get. You can assume they're going to fight to their potential. But come Saturday night, it, it's all up to them, right? All right. Hannah Goldie takes on Deanna Belbita. Minus 120 Goldie, plus 100 Belbita. I mean, this price opened up and it was like minus 200 plus 160. And uh, people jumped all over Belbita and brought it down to close to a pick I think it was a bad opener, to be perfectly honest. Belbita has had a pretty horrendous run. Molly Meatball McCann, 30-26-er uh, on all judges' scorecards. Round two. McCann looked like the second coming of Habib Nurmagomedov. Not exactly mm-hmm. a great look. Uh, she she was like all over. She had her in like a triangle, like a, a mounted triangle at the end of the round. Like it was a real, uh, she was putting on a wrestling clinic against her. Not the, not the greatest performance of Belbita's career. Then after that, I, I don't know what she was really thinking, man. Going in, taking Liana Jajua down. When you know that Jaja was like a, a grappling whiz, that's that's where she does her best work. Like I, I don't really know what the mindset was there as well. I mean, this is a real greasy, greasy fight. That at these prices, I can understand people who got in on the you know on the plus one sixties, plus one fifties. But like as this gets closer to a pick 'em, it, it's really hard to f- have a firm stance. Uh, Hannah Goldie on the other side. Uh, and, and on top of that, both of these women are coming down to 115 pounds and fought last time out at 125 pounds. Bovita does have a seven-inch reach advantage over Goldie. Goldie may be quite like a little bit more uh, athletic and maybe a little bit faster kicks. Um, this is this is like the definition of stay away from me because I don't really trust either one of them. What about you? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a stay away, but I would say it's a 50-50. Sorry, I got to plug in. My bad. I should have plugged this in before I start talking about dying. No, no, I'm just having my laptop's yeah, like, plugging, it's going to die. I'm no, 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 I mean, my laptop, my laptop was like, it's, it's going to die. And then in my mind, I was like, the whole time? sometimes I just had to move to plug it in. Oh. Uh, anyways, yeah, yeah. I, I should have known I'd probably talk about dying to Belbita versus Hannah Goldie longer than the three minutes. Actually, it's not even Hannah Goldie. It's Handy Goldschmidt. But apparently that's not marketable enough, so she's changed it to Hannah Goldie. But all the same, yeah, this is 50-50 fight. If you get plus money on Belbita, you jump on that, and that's what people did. If for whatever reason Belbita was to go to the favorite and you get plus money on Goldie, it seems like that would probably be the move. But both girls, it's just a question of like what version of them is going to show up. And to that effect, you just have no idea. Belbita, if you look at her record, right, she is 11-1 and when fighting for RXF in Romania. Mm-hmm. Those wins include 0-1, 0-0, one and oh, I'm surprised she stepped up that big that time, right? Uh, oh, and four, oh, and two, yeah, yeah, oh, and two, oh, and oh, oh, and oh, oh, and oh, one and two, 11 and one when fighting in Romania for RXF, two and five when fighting outside of Romania and RXF, and that's pretty telling. I mean, she comes over to the UFC from KSW. And uh, the Molly McCann fight, I, I, I don't know, man. I actually didn't think she looked all that bad. I know what you're saying. It was a 30-25 right across the board. In fact, all three judges scored the second round 30, to be 30, 10-7. 30-26, I believe. 
No, it was 30-25 right across the board. And uh, all three judges gave that second round 10-7s, right, because of a point deduction and a 10-8 round, right? So Molly McCann, just like you said, she's dominating here. She's got a topside triangle, big ground and pound. It is a legitimate 10-8 round. And Balbita happens to grab the cage while trying to get up from that, like, standing arm triangle choke. So uh, so it ends up being a 10-7 round. She did win all three of them. It's a 3-25. How could you think Balbita had a decent performance in a 30-25? First of all, it's her debut. She's up a weight class. Like, she's not naturally the bigger girl, but she's aggressive, and she uses that reach pretty good. Her kickboxing looks pretty decent, man. I mean, she uses the leg kicks very effectively. She's able to catch a lot of these girls on the end of those hook combinations, and I think that she's somebody that is making, you know, developments into her game. It's just where's the wrestling at? Being from Romania, there's not a great wrestling program. So when you fight an RXF and you beat these very low-level opposition, how do you improve? So she leaves Romania. She's full-time out of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada now with, uh, with you know, a good team of fighters uh, that have produced, you know, Kyle Nelson and Will Romero, Bellator veteran. Adrian Woolley's her wrestling coach. Like, she's working with the best people in the area. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe she's making improvements. It's just it's better than the situation she had back home. But then she fights Lilian Jajua. You're completely right, dude. She Did the striking look good? Yes, damn right it looked good. It did look sharp. And that's one thing you notice from the Molly McCann fight. And she lights up Jajua in the first minute. And Paul Felder, I mean, he's just like, whoa, what is going on? This girl looks good. And then she initiates the clinch. Mm-hmm. And then she fights right into Jajua's game plan. And then she gets armbarred. Bad ring IQ, for sure, for sure. Bad mistake, for sure, for sure. But now she's taking a full year off. And being that she's only 25 years old, it's this all going to be good for business. We know that she can strike. Her cardio is a little bit off, but she made her debut against Molly McCann on short notice fighting, you know, a cage warriors champion McCann. So you give her a pass there. And by the way, keep this in mind, right? The fight with Molly McCann, even though she fought so bad, she outstruck McCann 46 to 36 in the first round and was outstruck 39 to 34 in the third. Never, never slowed down, never quit, fought the whole way through admirable and then got armbarred sure but moving down to 115 that'd be good for her i think her strength is decent for this weight class i think it's decent for the division she's got to be able to keep this fight standing and then the thing with hannah goldie you've been to hannah goldie's instagram yeah oh my god she's jack this girl is shredded she's like, like talk the, about the just second coming of shit, alex man. alexandra albu here at one at one yeah yeah but like that could, real, that could be a jacked as well but this girl takes very the muscular it could be a tough weight cut but yeah 61 inch reach i understand why people took that um you know those earlier wider lines and and, and bet it down to a pick because i think we're right around where it probably should be got belbita who does have certain advantages but has shown some questionable ring iq versus a little bit more of an experienced fighter in goldie um not by the number of fights but it just seems like she fights a little bit more of a, a smart game plan from what we've seen in the cage um yeah again it's i don't want any because, part of it yeah i think balbita's got the experience because at least she fought for ksw at least she had you know 12 fights for rxf alone whereas goldie goldie fought some salty level of opposition she did be jillian robertson but you know one and no vanessa grimes a elisa blaine that was two and one shana googerty was two and no this really does come down to what version shows up. You got two versions of, of Goldie that could show up. The fight, the one that showed up against Callie Robbins on Contender Series, my God. I mean, output galore, never quite stopped. And I believe it is the Contender Series record. 141 significant strikes landed over the 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Out of the three seasons of Contender Series, it was the highest scoring total of anybody. She's got output for days. And then makes her UFC debut after that high output performance where all she was doing is Kicking counter, kick counter, kick, kick, kick. Eventually, she's tired of getting kicked. She moves forward counter. That performance 
right to the Miranda Granger fight where she just looked so hesitant. Didn't let her hands go. Head way up in the air. Very easy to counter. And whenever she'd get pressed against landed a couple couple decent strikes with her hands as well but i agree with you for the most part it was it was kind of rough to see and she was significantly outsized in that spot i think she learned immediately like 125 is no bueno for me my arms are too short yeah yeah it could be man could be you know it's interesting on the contender series the commentators make mention they said this is her first fight professionally this is her first fight where she's not uh breastfeeding like during fight camp leading up. So it's like, oh shit, she just had a kid. Again, that's something you see on her Instagram. She's a mother. And yet she keeps herself in fantastic shape. But it's the long layoff to me is what's killing me. Because again, she's got other things in her way. But after she loses to Granger, a fight she looked super tentative in and was easily controlled up against the cage. I mean, Granger, that was money in the bank whenever Granger wanted to press her up against the cage. She had nowhere to go. Balbita is not as strong or physical as Granger, but she is aggressive. And if she does initiate the clinch like she did in the Joshua, she could have a little more success there. But my, my issue is that after she loses to Granger, she has a fight book versus uh, Luke Bume at UFC on ESPN 26 in which she pulls out, right? Literally 13 months later, she resurfaces to fight Jessica Panay, pulls out due to COVID. They rebook the fight. She withdraws the second time around. So now she has not fought in just just a little under two full years. The last time you did see her, she was super hesitant and clearly suffering from octagon jitters. I mean, it was her UFC debut. And again, she did not look like the girl that fought Kylie Robbins at all. The karate's there, the kicking there. She does have a quick kick. She just, you know, is an agile fighter, but I don't know. This weight class, she's jacked and she should be stronger than Balbita. But Balbita's probably a little bit better in the clinch and is going to have the striking advantage. The seven inch reach advantage. One thing that you're noticing in the Miranda Granger fight is Granger's tall, has the reach advantage. And it's like she keeps her at the end of everything. And Goldie doesn't like getting hit in there, man. She doesn't no. react very well to it. And when she does get hit, it causes her to freeze up. And then she doesn't engage. And when you're freezing up and not engaging, you're losing the round. So if you were able to get a plus 165 ticket on, on Belbita, yeah, I, I hear you. But now that it's even money, it's like, no, this this is an even money fight. It just depends. It just depends who shows up come Saturday. So if I want to force a dog, I would just be like, we'll take the dog in this one. But I don't even think it's even money right now, isn't it? So yeah, pretty much. Why, 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 why would I force 100? It's close to 50-50 at this point. Yeah, and I would tell you to watch the weigh-ins, but your, your, own, your only takeaway from the weigh-ins will be, oh, shit, Goldie's ripped up. You know, like she's going to come in looking Yeah, she's going to look ripped, but she's gonna still going to be anything. a lot shorter than, than Belbita. You know, we got tall, we got a tall fighter coming in against like a little, a little spark plug, basically. All right, I think we've talked more than enough yeah. about that fight. Uh, all What I've got this week, I've got uh, Darren Elkins. I caught a plus 152. Um, Macy Barber, plus 125. Obviously, you like the other side, side there. I think it's a dogger pass situation from my respects. Um, I'm going to lay a hammer on Puna. Um, I was waiting to hear. Uh, I, I basically was waiting because it seemed like the money was moving in on Allen as it was anyway. I wanted to talk to you before I before I lay the wood, but that's going to be my biggest play on the card. And I'm looking for a parlay piece from uh for for Kyler Phillips. Maybe it's you Banks, but we'll have to we'll see how the rest of the week shakes out. I'm taking a little the little flyers on Ian by KO plus 700 on DraftKings Sportsbook and or sorry, Ian Heinish by KO plus 700 on DraftKings Sportsbook. And I already have the little, the little small sprinkle on uh, Ian KO one plus, uh, plus 2000. So that's where my money is this week. What about you? We're hit us with the PRP. 
Yeah, so hit you with the PRP. We're going to go with Sanhagen, Ladd, Phillips. Uh, let's say their full names just in case you weren't really paying attention. You're one of these people that just skips to the end. But we'll go with Corey Sanhagen. He's the favorite. Aspen Ladd, Kyler Phillips, Darren Elkins is dog number one. Miranda Maverick, Jordan Williams, uh, Puna Soriano is dog number two. That feels crazy saying yeah, I don't that. know if he's a dog. Well, I mean, I'm looking at minus 112, Allen, minus 108, Puna Soriano. You know what that makes yeah, him? DraftKings Sportsbook. That makes him the underdog. DraftKings Sportsbook sponsors moving. this uh, this this podcast. There, bad. Well, what did they what did they listen minus to when you said it? Minus one fifteen, minus one hundred five. Puna. Uh, I take it. I mean, I, it's a I take it. Fight. You didn't DM me the prices this week, Paul. I mean, how am I'm, I supposed to remember what, these things? You don't have a computer in front of you. Can't go to DraftKings. It is in front of you. What's that? No, but what I'm okay. What I'm saying is, is that he's the he's the underdog on FanDuel. We're, we're, we're even splitting hairs about nothing MD&D. here. But we're splitting hairs. Yeah, about you're nothing. right. I'm bringing it up. It is minus 150, minus 105. You're right. Well, some books he's a slight favorite. Some books he's a slight underdog. I'd like to say I would like I would like to say I have two <laughs> underdogs on this card. So that's what I'm sticking with. However, yeah, you're you're, you're probably right. We're gonna go with Heinrich. We're gonna go with Yanez. We're gonna go with Julio Arche. We're gonna go with Sinjara Ubex. And I'm going to go with Diana Balbita. Oh shit, she's the slight underdog too. So I actually got three underdogs. Two, if you go with Paul Shaughnessy's train of logic. Uh, props, yeah, I'm going to have to tackle those at another time. But but yeah, I would say Kyler Phillips, Adrian Yanez, that's your two-piece. You're going to get even money. You throw in uh, Julio Arce. You throw in Corey Sanhagen. That sets you up a hedge. And then your other key ones would be Sinjara Eubanks and uh, Aspen Ladd and Puna Soriano, right? So all of them together, which seems to be the most comfortable. Actually, you know what? I like Heinish on that too. And that's plus 2,600. So... You know, we're going to we're going to look to hit some decent tickets this weekend. We're going to look to sprinkle in some uh, some props as well, just to kind of try to hedge our asses a little bit if these parlays, for whatever reason, did go wrong. But, yeah, I'm excited about this card. And hopefully we uh, the summer's been heating up. You know what I mean? The picks has been getting good. The fights have been getting good. And uh, I just want to keep keep the barbecue cooking, baby. Well, let's go. All right. That is it for us this week. Hope you enjoyed the show for Cody Saftik. I'm Paul Shaughnessy saying goodbye and good luck. Oh, oh, oh! Oh!